we got the alternative energy free autonomy and welcome to the radioactive show produced at the studios of 3CR Melbourne and heard nationally on the community radio network hello this is the radioactive show produced on the lands of the Darawal people in Wollongong and broadcast all over these stolen lands of so-called Australia on the community radio network I'm Crunch on today's show, we play some excellent interviews broadcast on 3CR about Palestine solidarity. The first interview is between Inez Winters from the Thursday Breakfast Show on 3CR and Hume for Palestine member Wasim Razvi. He speaks about the organising of Hume for Palestine, the rallies they have been holding at HTA, Heat Treatment Australia, in Campbellfield in Melbourne's north, and how HTA is tied up with weaponry going to Israel. The second interview is between Jan Bartlett of 3CR's Tuesday Hometime Show and Nick McLennan, a journalist who focuses on defence, security and justice issues in the Pacific and speaks about the growing support in Pacific nations for Palestine. We'll start by hearing from Inez Winters speaking to Wasim Razvi. This was first broadcast on 3CR on Thursday 8th of February 2024. First up we have Hume for Palestine's Wasim Razvi and Hume for Palestine is a community action group within Hume Council presently demanding an immediate closure of local manufacturer in Campbellfield, Heat Treatment Australia or HTA. The Defence Department states that HTA provides crucial heat treatment processes for F-35 joint striker jets that are currently being used in the ongoing genocide in Gaza. And we're joined by Wasim, who is the founder of Islamic Research and Education Academy and activist at Alliance Against Islamophobia, uh, that challenges Islamophobia and assisting and empowering communities. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Wasim. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me here. No, of course. Thank you for coming on the show. I know it's a little bit early. My pleasure. Could we maybe start off with how Hume for Palestine was formed and who is actually in the Hume community? All right. Well, see, it's an interesting group that came up with the current uh, scenario that's happening in Gaza in Palestine. So Hume for Palestine was formed by members from diverse backgrounds, uh, multi-faith um, people living in Hume Council, uh, to be to be precise, uh, from various religious backgrounds, people from different organizations. Uh, but I guess the main point is residents of Hume and those who are associated with Hume Council region. So that's how the, it came into formation. The idea, the purpose seems to be that to take action against the ongoing genocide in Palestine. That's the immediate demand. And also further, it is going to work on a long-term goal, which is to bring an end to the occupation of Palestine and to support the Palestinians and their families living in Hume. There is a significant amount of uh, residents um, who do have that background. Yeah, thank you. I think it's important to mention that I know it is a diverse, multi-faith area. I know it's also industrial as well as residential with a range of factories, but I also assume that like the residents and the workers in Camberfield probably didn't know what was happening in their backyard. Uh, what was what has kind of been the response from the community to learning about the information about HTA, and then we'll go into a little bit more about HTA. Well, yes. So I, th- I think there's twofold, um, you know, response here that we came across. One is the residents, the community that lives in Newham, uh, they were absolutely shocked and disappointed. 
Um, Hume has residents, as you just mentioned, from war-torn backgrounds as well, including Palestinian families. Uh, also, those who have recently arrived from Gaza live very close to this factory area. Yeah. It's quite distressing and mentally affecting the residents directly. The residents were willing to take action the moment they heard that this facility is here. So that's the response from the, the residents that we came across. Then we also came across the workers from the surrounding factories. Mm. They started to inquire about the reason of the protest. And I think that that really hit the target because these protests are awareness campaign as well. So uh, when we informed them about HDA and its direct involvement in the genocide, in, in in Palestine and the manufacturing of weapons, they too were um, gobsmacked and commended our action and our support. They, 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 they said they will be supporting us against this facility. Um, I, I remember one of the workers actually saying to uh, one of our colleagues that, uh, good on you guys, you know, this is bloody shocking and I wish all the best and hope your campaign is successful. So this this just shows that, you know, people were very openly supportive of any action against such a such a company, such a manufacturer, they're right in their backyard. Yeah, thank you so much for outlining that. I think yeah, it's important to mention that yes, it's residential, it is also industrial, and together there's a lot of community organizing and and talks that you have to have to build relationships. But it sounds like the community is ready to take action, and it's really important and power and powerful to see. I. I know that uh, you've held, Human for Palestine has held a rally in front of Heat Treatment Australia factory in Camberfield. Could you tell us a little bit more about why exactly HTA and how they're complicit in the weapons manufacturing of F-35s? Right. So let, let's put it this way. I, see, I think it, we, it will be helpful if we can try understand how the weapons industry and how the manufacturing, uh, you know, system works. So first I'll just say, you know, why we are protesting against HTA directly. The thing is the kind of weapons that are being used in Gaza right now, and indeed in all conflicts today, are very highly engineered pieces of equipment. Yeah. A plane such as the F-35 or even F-16 is made up of thousands of parts produced around the world. Now, interestingly, there are about 50 factories in Australia making parts for the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter alone. That's a specific, uh, you know, uh, type of F-35. Now, this includes from, you know, titanium keels made by Lovett in Greensboro to the hinges on the bomb bay doors made by Rosebank in Bayswater. All of these are the metal parts for the F-35 that need to undergo very specific metallurgical treatments to bring them up to what is called NATCAP standard, U.S. National Aerospace Defense Contractors Accreditation Program, but before they can be fitted to fighter planes. So in short, HTS facilities in Campbellfield in Melbourne, as well in Sydney and Brisbane, are where these treatments happen. Without these parts and the treatment by HTA on Lara Way in Campbellfield, the F-35s could not fly. So many parts of the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter are made in Australia. This is, this is the concern that, that we have. And these are being used directly to bomb the civilians in Gaza. And we know this is no less killing men, women, and children, bombing hospitals, you know, killing um, uh, the, uh, the journalists, one, uh, one and everybody. So in short, um, HTA has, you know, direct relationship with Lockheed Martin, the overall builder of the F-35, um, and it's providing heat treatment services for the Australian subcontractor manufacturers above as well. So this is one aspect of it. And I'll quickly just to, you know, draw attention to two other aspects. Yeah, of course. Go for F- it. F-35s 
are directly being used by Israel to bomb Gaza. Now, this has been confirmed on December 12 by the head of the Joint Strike Fighter Program in United States congressional testimony, which revealed that in the aftermath of October 7 attack, the United States swiftly upgraded Israel's F-35 fighters. And Australia is complicit in it in providing it that the, the parts of it and the treatment required for it. The last part is the Elbit connection. Maybe some of our, our you know, our viewers have uh, heard before about Elbit systems. This is Israel's largest military manufacturer and produces around 85% of Israel's defense forces. Now, it also supplies the surveillance technologies along, the, along with the separation wall and the notorious checkpoints. Now, it is one of the only arms companies in the world who has been divested from by international investment firms due to its involvement in the Israel-Palestine conflict. Now, by any benchmark, this is an evil company. Interestingly, in 2018, Elbit's Australian subsidiary, which is called Elbit Systems Australia, came under scrutiny when the Australian De Defence Force stopped using their battle management systems due to concerns that they were being used for espionage by Israel. Now, try and understand this close connection between HTA Global and Elbit Systems Australia, that they are seeking to expand its Australian operations, which should be of great concern to any Australian concerned with the ongoing genocide in Palestine. And this is, this is exactly why I think it is crucial um, to, to challenge HTA um, in order to stop the, 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 the genocide in Gaza. Yeah, I think you've laid it out really accessibly, really, uh, really able to understand the clear connection, where it comes from, what impact this has, and how disruptive it could actually be. And as you've mentioned, like HTA... As the Defense Department has described it too, it is a critical choke point and it is a target that is, you know, could be really, really disruptive. And if it the factory closes down, that can have, you know, big impacts on F-35s. I also wanted to bring up the point of the relationship between Lockheed Martin and Elbert. And yeah. earlier you mentioned, like, universities or, like, workers... Or maybe, yep. yeah, let me regain my thoughts. <laughs> I think they're going all over the place. I have so much to say about this. But we know that Lockheed Martin and Albert have relationships with universities here in Nam. And the point of, like, weapons industries being so alluring or made to be alluring from university graduates because they pay really highly and have yep. easy, accessible uh, placements for, like, engineering students or people that work in aerospace, that's an yep. immediate connection as well. And we... You know, here in Campbellfield, here in Nam, we're not um, we're not divest from it. It is directly impacting the universities that we work in, the communities that we're in yes. as well. Right, very true, and and I think that that is also you know very alarming, very concerning because what's happening is it's spreading its feet across the the, the community here, and when when somebody is sort of you know challenged for for their presence, for their involvement, and then having this sort of lobby, having this sort of impact on the entire community in different streams is something, you know, to be alarmed for all Australians, not just in relation to this current genocide, but we don't want anything to be manufactured from Australia or anyone being utilised or any of our skills being utilised for mass murder, for war crimes anywhere in the world. And, you know, just, just sorry, to, sorry to add this point, but, you know, when we, when we said never again in the past, 
after the Holocaust of the Jewish community, and we said never again when we saw the Aboriginal and Australian indigenous population being massacred. When we say never again, we mean our land, our resources, our skills do not be utilized for similar crimes in future, never again. Yeah, 100%. And I think it's an ongoing commitment. And, you know, I hear it when you speak, when you talk about Hume for Palestine, that it is a ongoing commitment that's going to be lifelong, um, particularly with everybody that is currently involved or who will be involved. So I definitely hear that in your voice. I think just to wrap up, could you tell us more about kind of the continuation of the rally? Where is it? And what can we expect? What are the demands? Right, sure. So, see, um, we, we did this rally twice already on Fridays, and when we did that, um, we had a good turnout. We, we saw the HTA facility being shut down for the day, and that just shows that, you know, that they're, that they're not able to face the community uh, when we are raising the concern. We wanted to meet their um, in charge or, or the manager there, but they refused to meet. So we want to just raise our concerns that we have uh, in relation to this. So that's just what has happened in the past. We had hundreds of local residents who turned up and, and raised the concern. Now, what we want from the community is we want everybody to create more awareness. That's one. How do you do that? You talk to people around you. You talk to your neighbors, friends, workmates, whatever it is. So the, the, the community is aware that there is a facility in our vicinity, in our region, which is directly involved in the genocide of Gaza, which is, in short, having blood on their hands. The second is to sign the petition. We are forwarding, uh, raising a petition uh, to the local council, uh, which, which actually did a couple of uh, months and years ago as well. They, they, uh, the local council in, uh, in uh, Hume they actually uh, petitioned, the, the local council itself actually demanded that uh, you know, Australia be a signatory and not uh, get involved into nuclear weapons manufacturing across the globe or anywhere, including any of the, 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 the places in Australia. So it just shows that the local councils have been active in the past. The local councils also signed um, when the Ukraine-Russia conflict uh, took place. So we are demanding that you know, the community sign the petition in order to raise concern with the local council, with the local MPs and uh, the politicians. The third is to join come down and join the rally. Uh, that is where you will hear more about it. You will work together as, as a community and we will be able to demand and get our demands fulfilled um, together. Um, this peaceful rally, um, we, we, the whole idea, the purpose of it, we want to shut down the HDA. Now, it might sound radical, but this is what we cannot let a, a blood, a, a, you know, a weapons manufacturing outlet in our backyard. We don't want weapons to be manufactured from factories in our neighborhoods, which is currently contributing to the genocide. Hey, that's not a so radical a demand at all. That's very reasonable. And yeah, I'm just wondering if you had just like a final word to say to the listeners before I let you go. Right. Sure. See, I think our, our conscience as, as humans, you know, uh, we, we are a people, we are a community who respect life. And I, be, I believe when it is absolutely clear through the International Court of Justice, ICJ, that there is an, a genocide that is taking place in, in, uh, in Palestine right now. I think we all as humans, we all as Australians, we all as Hume Council residents, we have a responsibility here. We cannot let, um, you know, genocide take place by being complicit in it. And one of the ways is to raise our voice, to talk about it, to create the awareness for the plight of the Palestinians, and to make sure that Australia, as a country, as a society, does not become complicit in this genocide. We have a responsibility to be the people on the right side of history, and we have an opportunity here. 
You're listening to The Radioactive Show, broadcast on 3CR Community Radio and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. That was Wasim Razvi, a member of Hume for Palestine, speaking to 3CR Thursday Breakfast Show. To find out more about the organising against HTA, find Hume for Palestine on social media. Next, we'll hear Jan Bartlett of 3CR's Tuesday Home Time Show speaking to Nick McLennan, a journalist who focuses on security and justice issues in the Pacific. He speaks about growing support for Palestine among people of the Pacific. The support for Palestinian rights in the Pacific. It's shifting, and it's really interesting. You know, historically, Pacific Island countries, uh, Pacific Island governments particularly, have been very strong supporters of Israel. And that comes from a mixture of, uh, of reasons. Some Pacific governments, like uh, the Marshall Islands and the Federated States of Micronesia, are aligned with the United States through um, what they call the Compact of Free Association. These are agreements that give the United States certain rights over defence and foreign policy issues for these countries, even though they're independent with their own prime ministers, presidents uh, uh, and parliaments. And so you often see UN resolutions about Palestine where it might be, you know, 170 to 6. And the 6 is usually uh, the United States, Israel, and two or three small Caribbean and Pacific countries, uh, Dominica, Nauru, Marshall Islands, Federated States of Micronesia, are regular countries voting this way. And so you saw um, after the, uh, the events the brutal attacks of uh, the 7th of October and Israeli government launching attacks on Palestinian civilians and non-combatants in Gaza. The first resolution that came up in October 2023 from Jordan and other countries calling for a ceasefire and calling for a um, humanitarian support for the people of Gaza, there were 14 countries that voted against that um, alongside the United States and uh, Israel, six of the 12 remaining countries who voted no on that first resolution in October came from the Pacific Islands. And some of that's drawn from, you know, conservative politics about the Middle East. Some of it's the result of uh, strong Israeli diplomacy and, uh, and, and negotiations in the Pacific over the last 20 years. Some of it's really drawn on cultural matters related to the strong strands of Christianity in the Pacific, the vision of uh, Israel as the Holy Land, and historic connections with uh, Christian Zionism as a strong movement across the Pacific. What's really changing at the moment, and this is happening all over the world, is that there is small but significant support for the Palestinians growing in Pacific Island countries and territories right across the region. And um, I wrote an article which was published in the Israeli newspaper Haaretz, highlighting the, the really unprecedented nature of this shift in the smallest countries in the world, in the Pacific, towards support for Palestine, simply because of Israeli policy under the Netanyahu government, and indeed going back for decades um, under successive governments. And what's been the reaction to that, Nick? It was really interesting that Haaretz were very eager to, to do this because the Israeli government constantly touts the fact that Pacific Island governments have been very supportive of Israel's uh, policy over many years. Indeed, recently, uh, last September, Papua New Guinea announced that it would shift its embassy from uh, uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Occupied Jerusalem is, uh, is 
seen as a, particularly East Jerusalem, is seen as a place for uh, a future Palestinian state as part of a Palestinian state. So there's enormous resistance to this idea that Donald Trump was, you know, eagerly pushing when he was president to relocate embassies to Jerusalem. The Israeli government has agreed to bankroll for the first few years the costs of Papua New Guinea maintaining an embassy in Jerusalem rather than Tel Aviv. So there's a bit of money on the table to make that happen. You know, Israel is very proudly saying, look, these countries, you know, these moral Christian countries really support what we're doing. And what we've seen is public pressure begin to shift that. I don't want to exaggerate this too far. There's still very strong support for Israel amongst ordinary people and certainly amongst some governments in the Pacific. But we've seen in every country and territory protests in support of Palestine, petitions, vigils, protest rallies, uh, lobbying, and so on. And it's having some effect. For example, Fiji, uh, under Prime Minister Sidovini Rambuka, came out and criticised Hamas after 7th of October very strongly, and Fiji voted no to the first resolution in October 2023 in support of a ceasefire. However, there have been massive protests in PNG. Uh, every week, women's groups and uh, um, non-government human rights groups and others gather for protests, uh, they're small but significant, rallying support for Palestine. When the South Africans launched their case before the ICJ, community groups in Fiji hired a hall and live-streamed the South African presentation, which was the call to the International Court of Justice to acknowledge uh, uh, that Israel is committing genocide in the uh, occupied territories and in Gaza. And so you see that shift. So when a second vote came up in December, a second resolution that went to the UN about uh, a, an immediate ceasefire, about humanitarian assistance for the Palestinians, Fiji switched its vote and voted yes instead of no. Uh, Samoa didn't vote in the first vote in uh, October 2023, but there was a big petition campaign in Samoa. There were rallies outside the government office, and Samoa voted yes in support of a ceasefire in December. That's not the case for every Pacific country. There's certainly a diversity. But um, in the article that I published in Haaretz, I listed protests, uh, not just in independent countries, but in the US and French colonies in the Pacific. There have been protests in Guam, in the Northern Marianas, in New Caledonia, in solidarity with the Palestinian people and calling for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the conflict. Those are part of a global trend. And I think Haaretz was eager to publish it simply because it made the point that this is an epochal change in Israel's relationship with other countries in the Middle East and Israel's long-term occupation of the Palestinian people. That Israeli Hasbara, as it's called, Israeli propaganda, isn't working. And it's not working in the smallest countries in the world. I was at the Cook Islands in November last year for the annual leaders meeting at the Pacific Islands Forum. And a small rally was held by women, Cook Islands women, outside the the venue um, with a banner saying Pacific leaders call for a ceasefire stop the massacre of God's children that sort of it's a, as I say it was a small protest but I think people in, in Haaretz were interested that in a country like the Cook Islands which is 18,000 kilometers away from Gaza it's about as far as you can go around the world a tiny country of 17,000 people there was a demonstration calling for the end of the Gaza massacre and that's a significant shift long-term politics doesn't mean that everyone supports Palestine in the Pacific that's certainly not the case 
but it just does reflect that there's a global trend for people realising that the long-term occupation of Palestinian land is leading to this disaster. It's a great pity, isn't it, Nick, that this hasn't rubbed off on the Australian government? Well, we have unprecedented protests in Australia. You know, I think the, the failure of the Australian government is, is shown by the suspension of funding to UNRWA immediately after the International Court of Justice has issued provisional measures calling, as they judge the long-term case, so that it'll take some years as to whether Israel is committing genocide. In the interim, they've called explicitly for countries, state parties to the ICJ, including Australia, state parties to the Genocide Convention, including Australia, to do all they can to abide by the provisional measures. And part of that is providing humanitarian support. There's a clear call. Well, they haven't determined. They've said there's a plausible case that genocide is being committed and that will ultimately be judged over some time. But in the interim, they've said you have to provide humanitarian support to the women, to the children, to the men, to the non-combatants, to the civilians who are being devastated by hunger, by cold, by illness, as well as by bombardment. That's a, a signal failure that Australia has been willing to go along with suspending aid, even though there's a lot of evidence now coming through the media that um, the question about the role of UNRWA in October the 7th is not as strong as has been suggested. Also, there's a lot of questions about what really happened on the 7th of October. Reading the Israeli press, you get a much different spectrum of debate than you sometimes see in the Australian media or the US media and so on. Um, you know, there are very courageous journalists like Gideon Levy, who once again is a very much in the minority of public opinion, but who continue to speak out about what a disaster this is in the long term for security in Israel and security for Israel, Israelis of Arab, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, Caucasian heritage. It's a terrible crisis at the moment. And as the immediate horror ends with the death of civilians, with the attacks on people in the West Bank and so on, with the release of the hostages, you'll then face a political crisis about what comes next. And I think that there's a growing awareness in Israel that the Netanyahu government has led them to the abyss in terms of political futures around security. And this is a reflection of debates that are going on around the world at the moment as people question this notion of what sort of security are we talking about? You know, the four countries, Russia, North Korea, France and Britain, who joined together at the UN to protect their nuclear arsenals, what security is that creating in the world for people in Ukraine who are under Russian bombardment, for people in Gaza who are under Israeli bombardment, for Rohingya in, in uh, Myanmar and other places? There's a global debate about the role of international law and security, and often governments are on the wrong side of that debate, whereas citizens' movements are growing around the world saying this has to be changed. That was Nick McLennan, a journalist who focuses on Pacific issues and international justice, defence and security more broadly. The full conversation with Nick McLennan can be heard by searching Tuesday Home Time on the 3CR website. Earlier in the show, we heard from Wasim Razvi as he spoke to Inez Winters of 3CR's Thursday Breakfast Show. This has been the Radioactive Show, produced for 3CR Community Radio and heard nationally on the Community Radio Network. A big thank you to the 3CR shows whose audio we have shared today. 
And thanks to the Nuclear Free Collective of Friends of the Earth Melbourne for their ongoing support of our show. I'm Crunch, and here's to a nuclear-free and peaceful future. Mm-hmm.